I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I explore the subject of fame by talking to people who've experienced it themselves and ask them how it has affected their own journey as well as the lives of those around them. My guest today is author, broadcaster, and scriptwriter John O'Farrell. John wrote on TV shows including Spitting Image, Have I Got News For You, and Smith and & Jones, while also branching out into film, co-writing smash hit animation Chicken Run. However, it's as an author that John is best known, having written best-selling political memoir Things Can Only Get Better, and its follow-up Things Can Only Get Worse, as well as five novels and two best-selling history books called An Utterly Impartial History of Britain and An Utterly Exasperated History of Modern Britain. John has also branched out into writing musicals, having co-written Broadway hit Something Rotten, as well as upcoming production if COVID ever allows Mrs. Doubtfire. So I'd like to give a huge, almost famous welcome to John O'Farrell. How are you, John? Very well, thank you, Barney. Thank you for having me on. Yes, uh, I often get intros wrong. Did I miss anything? What What would you say? What pulled at you? Like, he didn't mention this. What What did no, I miss? That was pretty comprehensive, I think. Yeah? I, I mean, you know, uh, in a long career of script writing, I've done... Um, many things so I had a column in the Guardian for five years maybe that was maybe you might have yeah if you were really doing for the extended director's cut but and I've also and also uh I feel like I've seen you on too many kind of tv talking head shows and as guests on panel shows to really mention them all yeah those are all actually that was a very pertinent to this podcast because that was during a period of my life you know soon after my sort of uh, I first came to public attention sort of and I don't really get asked to do those as much anymore what would you say was the link uh, or the key part of your creativity that then led to you getting that semblance of fame during that period or getting on tv shows stuff like that uh well for 15 years I was a scriptwriter writing for tv shows as you said I was behind the camera uh and then I wrote a book and it was a hit and suddenly I was being asked on Newsnight and on Question Time and Have I Got News For You eventually and um, Grumpy Old Men and all yeah. those sorts of shows. And I always thought those things helped sell the books. That was why I sort of did them. I don't think I'm particularly great on TV. I think I'm better on the page. But uh, people go to bookshops and they go, oh, that's that bloke off Grumpy Old Men. Yeah, I'll get my dad that for Christmas. Really interesting you said that because I um, I like to think of myself as a writer. My background is TV production and some stand-up comedy. And I used to say, oh, I only um, do stand-up because I want to become a better writer. But I think I was telling myself a lie. And actually, I want to be a really good performer. So when you say, oh, you think you're better on the page, is there any part of you that 
kind of you feel like you have to say that or you genuinely feel when you're on TV you don't enjoy watching yourself or you think you could be better? I um, did try stand-up and I was um, uh, had a couple of good experiences and then, you know, I had one bad one and stopped and then the writing took off. I probably would like to be a really good performer and I started out performing. I went to a drama school and I did drama at university and I always wanted to be sort of Michael Palin growing up. Um, so, yeah, in another life, I would love to be a really good, funny comic actor performer but i just don't think i'm good enough i sort of learned that quite early on i feel and, it would uh, be remiss of me not to ask you what yeah. happened in the in the com- comedy gig that oh, didn't go well yeah well i won a talent competition at jongleurs battersea and Brilliant. i did this comic character and i stormed it and it was like everyone saying oh you must we'll get your gigs we'll get your gigs and i said and i said to myself every comic i see does the same jokes every time i see him so i'm going to do a whole new set i was 23 or 22 i'm going to do a whole new set every time i went out on jonglers as myself in a brand new oxfam old oxfam suit stood up there and i bombed with this completely new material like an idiot and I was booed off the stage by going, ha, ha, ha. And to that gig, I invite, invited everyone I knew. Right. I think this is going to be amazing. I remember thinking, this joke is so funny. I have to leave a long pause here. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was just like tumbleweed, you know. And it's what was so awful was in the dressing room afterwards. No one would make eye contact with me. It was like, oh, that guy's got leprosy. Um, so, yeah. And then I thought I'd just take some time out and think about the stand-up. And then I started to get stuff on the radio. And I got a writing partner. And... Uh, never really looked back or wanted to get back up. Yeah, so that's interesting because I feel like the key, yeah, and and it's cliche, but the key is getting back on after that. I mean, basically from that story, John, that's the most mad, (laughs) ridiculous, overconfident, arrogant way of approaching stand-up. I can do it different every single time. It made me think immediately of... um, Larry David obviously used to do mm-hmm. some stand-up, right? And I've seen good some, comparison. Well, very, very <laughs> similar. Uh, but lots of people talk about how they saw him do stand-up, and he just wasn't appreciated in his time. And then he found, obviously, right, Seinfeld, writing and Seinfeld, yes, and whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I did do the stand-up because I wanted an outlet for these jokes I was writing. Right. Uh, and when I found an outlet, I think that the, the hunger wasn't there as much. I think you've got to really want it to be a successful stand-up. And I wanted it a bit. Yeah. And I should also say that, for instance, seeing as I brought up American comedians, in America especially, people will hone their 20-minute set for about 15 years. Yeah. Whereas John was keen to do a, a, a different five minutes every time and invite his family. Very impressive, John. Uh, I'm not surprised oh, you never went back. So uh, a question that I ask all of my guests, John... Are you famous? Do you think John O'Farrell is famous? Not really, I'm afraid. Uh, there was a period in the very early noughties, end of the 90s, when I was very slightly famous for a book. And people thought they knew the name. They might have seen me on panel shows. And people would say things like, oh, uh, you used to work at Swindon Social Services, didn't you? And I'd be like, <laughs> no, no, you definitely worked at Swindon Social Services because I've seen you before. Um, so that was the level. Someone did say to me once, oh, you look like an older version of John O'Farrell <laughs> to <Very> which the <laughs> only answer was I am I'm afraid the older version of John O'Farrell so now I'm not famous I can walk anywhere no one recognizes me every now and then so I was in a I was at the seaside uh, last weekend and I bought a coffee and somebody just said can I just thank you for all your books you give me an awful lot of pleasure and that's a great level of recognizability to have that once yeah. in a while somebody's liked your stuff sees your face and says thank you and you think definitely the reason they would recognize your face is because of the tv work you've done on the back of being a writer not because you're you know you're an author your face is your face isn't on the cover of the books like 
No, no, it's not. Celebrity. Well, it was, uh, no, uh, yeah, exactly that. I think they've seen me on um, some uh, god awful. I loved 1983 show that I shouldn't have said yes to. <laughs> Uh, do you? It made me immediately think. Do you have any shows of that ilk that you did, or any appearances on any of the shows you've done that you really regret? Anything you said that you wish you'd never said, or you really cringe at? Uh, I wish I'd been a bit funnier. I mean, so for example, Grumpy Old Man was one of many um, talking head shows that they came around here with a camera. It was like two hours in my lounge, uh, me chatting, and usually it was like, oh, I'll talk about that election, or I'll talk about the minor strike, or whatever. Grumpy Old Man, I didn't quite understand what the format was, but they wanted me to moan about stuff. So I just moaned about some stuff. And then I saw how funny Arthur Smith was on it and uh, um, Tony Hawks and uh, all the other people who were good on it. And I thought, oh, I should have done a bit more preparation for that because it was repeated a hundred times. Mm. So we're sitting around at the curry once uh, that uh, after football when the game that you and I yes, both Yes, John play. and I play in a football match yeah. together. Regular Tuesday night midnight curries. I remember doing what everyone was laughing and and I threw out a joke and it went completely flat and Glavinson said, don't worry, Arthur Smith will be on in a minute. And it was the most <laughs> cutting sort of <laughs> not as funny as Arthur Smith put down. Uh, but it was for Bullseye from Clive. Very good. Classic Clive, <laughs> I should say. Uh, also a previous guest on this uh, podcast. Um, it made me think when you said that, though, because I've seen, I mean, I haven't seen it for years, but I thought, and obviously this is because, like you said, it's been repeated so many times. I thought you were a regular on Grumpy Old Men for loads and loads of series. And I definitely never saw you on that and thought you were any more or less funny than anyone else. I promise I'm not just saying that. So I wonder, is there an element of, you know, you could have been at your funniest and watched yourself on that and thought I'm not still not as good as the other people on it because that's just the performer's way, isn't it? I think... I could have said some more interesting and funny things. It's not a big deal. I'm mm. just saying, you just asked me if there was um, a panel show where I, I regretted. I just think I should have uh, done a bit more prep if I'd known how famous that show was going to be. I thought it would just go out late on, you know, night, yeah. one night and everyone would forget about it. So and that doesn't bother me at all. And, uh, uh, you know, there was a period when lorry drivers would shout, Oi, Grumpy! <laughs> Say something grumpy. And it, I thought, it's ridiculous that I was known for that. Um, Classic, hilarious lorry yeah. drivers. Yeah. And then, but, but for, for example, on um, my first one, I got News View. I thought I did really well. And um, they asked me if I'd like to, it was the week after Angus had just gone. They asked me if I'd like to audition to be permanent host. And I was like, blimey. And I had to think hard about that. And that's when they're still looking for a permanent host. And I thought, no, that's, I don't want to be that tabloid fodder or be that, be that famous, really. Right. At that that's point. Uh, and also I knew Angus and stuff and I thought that's a bit weird I felt weird about going on the show anyway um, but I did it because it was a big big deal especially back then uh, but I didn't want to be that famous and I thought so I said no to it and I probably wouldn't have got it anyway yeah I mean you know obviously having grown up with Angus I yeah. believe he was on about 100,000 an episode or 50,000 an episode at one point John are you sure that was a, no. a wise decision <laughs> it wasn't a factor um, I'm sure they would have thought it must this be a, a factor no. of course it's a factor no because they, they wouldn't have paid me that much he'd, he'd you know got his his fee up um, sure. uh, to that level over the years and really they asked me if I would audition I didn't think there was a high chance of me getting it and the money thing was like uh, I wasn't sitting around going god I really wish I had a bigger sure. car or a second home I don't want any of those things no. so I'm fine very interesting that must have been because I'm just putting myself in in your place a little bit I mean, I, I mean one thing I will say as well um, I feel like it's relevant, I've not said this before, is that one of my, what I look at as kind of achievable goals, or if I go back into stand-up or mm. were to get any level of success, would be to host an episode of I Got News For You. I feel like it's kind of like full circle for me. Mm. So putting myself in your place where you get an opportunity to audition for something that is in essence the, certainly at that time as well, the biggest 
panel show in the country. Yeah. Well, back then it was huge. Yeah. And Angus going was a huge news story. Yeah. So for me to imagine being the person to replace him and what the reviewers would think of this bloke coming in and doing that job. And he did it well. And I didn't man. think that I was the right person to step into those shoes. No. Um, How much did you feel like he might think you're stabbing him in the back? That was a slight factor, I think. I mean, I know Angus very well. I wouldn't say he's a friend. He's not someone I go drinking with, but I see him at football and, um, you know, and uh, we, we, we go to Italy every year and play our football games over there. But I don't uh, I don't think it was out of loyalty to Angus that I didn't go for it. I thought it, the tabloids would rip me apart, actually. Yeah. And I thought I wouldn't be as... I, don't, I didn't think I was the right person for it, if I'm honest. Yeah. I wonder if they... Well, clearly they never found anyone who they thought would be the right person. No, because, and I think that's been a good solution, actually. Yeah. At the time, everyone thought, oh, it's Alexander Armstrong's going to get it, or... It's amazing, nobody thought, no, let's have a woman. But they were just going, no. which white male could we have here? Yeah. Well, I think Boris Johnson was talked about as uh, being... God help us. ...having potential at one yeah. point. Um, I wonder whether, in terms of your uh, how your career has panned out, how much of it has deviated from any plan you had or any ideas? Or, or was it just always a matter for you of be creative and see where it takes me? No, it wasn't that. It was, I want to write uh, really big TV comedy shows. I want to write uh, a 40 Towers. I want to write a Monty Python. Um, and in that sense, I got to the point in 97 where we wrote a sitcom Um we're starring Jim Broadbent. We got a BBC One slot. You know, we had the pilot commission. That was a success. And then it just went out and it just wasn't quite good enough. And it was a bit flat. It was called The Peter Principle. It was about a bank manager. While we were doing that, this VHS came into Hattrick Productions. And it was this bloke called Ricky Gervais who had this character of a bloke who worked in an office. I just looked at that and I thought, oh, God, that's good. That's so much <laughs> better than what we're doing. It's so much more inventive. We were still trying to do 40 Towers 20 years later. And this thing was no laugh track and it was just the atmosphere was different and it was character based. And it's just like, oh, damn. So then I had the idea for writing a book, one book, and it was a hit. It was a, and it was a really big hit. I mean, it was sort of everyone was reading it then. Um, and um, then they said, we'd like to write a novel. I went, OK. And I didn't plan to give up TV writing or anything. It's just I really enjoy, after having had the crap of arguing about scripts and being mucked around about commissions, it was really nice writing a book and being the person who got the attention rather than writing for Angus, for Clive, for yeah. Nick Hancock and them getting all the fuss at the green room. Uh, and then when I, I went along and to the publishers and everyone's like giving me bottles of champagne and asking me if I'd like a cigarette or whatever. What about the lone <laughs> a cigarette? Here, have a cigarette. <laughs> no, well, I'll tell you the story. I think I've said this before, but it was, um, for, for, uh, uh, this is to show you how long ago it was, but it was, um, John, welcome to the Transworld Publishers. You've got a drink. Great. Would you like a cigarette? No, thanks. Someone else gives me a drink. John, you got a drink. Do you want a cigarette? I might have. The third person offered me a cigarette. I said, why do people keep offering me cigarettes? They said, oh, we have this rule. We're not allowed to smoke in the building unless the author does. Oh, so, of course. So I held one. I lit one. Lit one. I don't smoke. I lit one and held it. And everyone was loved me ever after that because they all smoked. And it's like... That's <laughs> hilarious. Oh, my God. Making you so feel so sort of, special for their yeah, own benefit. Exactly. That was the level of fame I had there. And what about the change in... Um, writing style and particularly in you know it strikes me that being a, a novelist or an author on your own is a lonely job yeah actually that's a good question i was for years in writing teams i was in a writing partnership with mark burton uh, then i was in teams on have i got news for you spitting image room 101 all those shows that was great fun we used to just rip the piss out of each other all day and get 
expensive yeah. food brought in for us for no lunch. women in those teams either i imagine <laughs> there weren't back then no, no. terrible um and uh, we'd have uh, we'd have a lot of laughs and then suddenly after sort of two years of writing books i was like oh this is a bit this is a bit lonely this so i started to go to um the london library in st james's square and i met other writers there and we'd have lunch together and moan about our covers or our editors or our publishers or something okay. not me i never moan about my editors bill i love my editor but um i didn't know the london library was a place where writers yeah frequent. what's the deal with that well it's you know it's obviously silence in the library but i've got a bunch of friends who um uh write there and we have lunch together i had lunch there today with my friends very and, cool uh, yeah it's a it's a sort of a literary community. Yeah, yeah. Like a boys' club is what it sounds like no, to me, John. Uh, Lissa Evans, who I was originally my producer on Room One Hundred and One and Weekending, she's a novelist there, and we uh, we both. Very wrote cool. Her. That's yeah. a completely new bit of intel that I had no idea about. Um, I wondered what because uh, the way that this podcast started was all about um, interviewing family members of famous people. Yeah. I wonder what your family, in particular, make <laughs> of of you having been in the public eye, being in the public eye. Uh, are they uh, embarrassed when, you know, when those moments happen, like you said, someone comes up to you when you're at the beach or wherever and says, thank you for all your books. Is it, were your kids cringe at that when they were younger? What was uh, like? No, my kids were quite small when I was famous, uh, when I was slightly famous. I remember we were on a beach in West Cork. We climbed down this cliff and there's one other couple on the beach and this woman was reading The Best A Man Can Get. And my daughter was like, daddy, daddy, she's got your book. And it's like, it's cool, it's cool. Don't say anything. Don't play, say cool. Play, play cool. Play cool, play cool. <laughs> no, but they were good. They were, uh, I don't think my son particularly loved me, you know, uh, being in the uh, tabloids when I, you know, stood in a by-election and things like that. But um, uh, they were quite small. My mum loved it. And she was like, uh, you know, I, I didn't do TV documentaries and put her in them. And she was, I'd go back to her house to film them. And her whole hair was set, new outfit. And she was like Brilliant. so, so into it. It was hilarious. Um and uh, she, she was all, they're both really supportive. My whole family were uh, all really supportive and uh, there's never been any edge to them about that. So uh, I think uh, if I'd been properly famous, I think that would have put different pressures on them. So I'm glad you brought up the by-election thing because I think that is relevant for somebody who's openly said I wasn't keen and has made decisions to not get, uh, become more famous potentially. If you'd got a seat in Parliament, mm. how far up that ladder might you have wanted to go? And could that not have taken you into that realm? You know, there's a little bit of me which would like to have been an MP for part of my life. Um, and I am not bad at uh, being in uh, meetings and steering them to a positive outcome and stopping people tearing each other's throat apart. You know, um, So uh, I could have had a role in politics, but uh, I think I'm a little bit uh, inappropriate and would like to do be too facetious really for the house of commons uh i thought they were prerequisites for being in the house of <laughs> maybe, commons maybe. but uh no i both times i stood for parliament i was standing just to fly the flag for labor i thought it'd be more interesting than just delivering leaflets around here like i usually do and there were both uh pretty certain defeats right so i stood in unwinnable seats so they always go failed politician john O'Farrell. it's like well yeah i suppose so that i lost uh but who's I didn't they know. who's they when you mention it like that uh, the mail the daily or, mail yeah, yeah yeah or you know whoever wants to have a pop at me but I don't care about that. I didn't, uh, wasn't aching to be an MP. I was asked by Ed Miliband's office if I'd stand at Eastleigh. And I went, all right then. I think Ed Miliband did think I was famous. Because right. in the Labour Party, <laughs> I was really famous for a bit. I could go to conference and it was like being a star. It was everyone wanting their picture with me. And I'd walk out of the conference and down the high street, no one would know who I was. So it was a real sort of surreal sort of bubble in which I was really famous. So Ed Miliband was like, we should get a celebrity to stand at Eastleigh. What about John O'Farrell? And everyone around him went, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, yeah. that's yeah. And I know they asked more famous people than me before they got to me. So there's a oh, breakfast TV. Such as uh, a woman who had a column in the Mirror and was on breakfast TV. Um, mm. Anyway, she. I mean, there is a Fiona Phillips, but I can't visualise who that I is. Think that, I think that was her name. She was um, anyway. She went on Twitter saying they asked me first on the day of my election. Thanks for it. But um, I know that I was somewhere down the list, but I was the first one stupid enough to say yes. Okay, very interesting. So a big part of the uh, a big part of the three series of Almost Famous we've had so far has been my guests telling me that the worst part of being in the public eye or just being creative is being lied about in the press. Uh, or the press or reviewers writing negative things and how that affects their creativity, confidence and motivation. So in this series, what I wanted to do is ask my guests to bring with them something of this ilk. So um, maybe a review or a hatchet job that uh, the media has done on them so that we could read it out (laughs) and discuss, I think, for the benefit of the audience, what it's actually like to I don't know open your paper your papers one morning or look on the internet when you've when you've created something you put all your work in something and you have someone just doing it down I think it's really important I grew up uh, obviously around a bit of fame and I certainly have lots of examples of when my family story was in the press and remember what it was like to try and block it out and how hard it was so John has kindly uh, <laughs> sent me in advance uh, a review of uh, well, John. Why don't you introduce uh, the situation, and then what I'll do is I'll read the review. It's very, it's very long, and uh, you're going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then oh, we'll God. discuss it a bit. But but give a bit of context to, okay. to it. Well, I mean, this isn't the only bad review I've had in my life. This is the last one I can remember that really bothered me. I mean, I've had bad review for books and for the sitcoms and for um, other things I've done, which is, you know, you put your head above the parapet. You have to be prepared to take that. That's fine. Uh, the thing about this review, it was about it was a very important review because we had uh, amazingly got a show on Broadway, a musical on Broadway. Me and uh, uh, two other American guys that I was working with, we'd got it all the way from development to you know reading table readings. The producer raised the money, and we put up all singing, all dancing musical on Broadway, a comic musical. The previews were fantastic. People loved it. We had a standing ovation in the middle of Act One. Stopped the house for about a minute and a half while people stood on the stood up from their seats and applauded and lifted the roof. And I thought, this is going to be a smash hit. And this is going to be the next producers. It's going to be the next, you know, whatever. And um, on opening night, we had this amazing party and Tina Fey was there. And- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Eric Idle, all these amazing famous people. And um, it got to about midnight. And I was, family was there and friends I'd got over to New York. I was like, oh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the New York Times review come out? And then the moment of me saying that, I thought, oh, it's, it's about midnight. And the review comes out about nine normally. And then that moment, I thought, if it was any good, mm. people would have come rushing up to me to show it to me. So in that second, I thought, the moment I remembered we're supposed to have a review, I thought, oh, it must be shit. Right. And so I said to a friend, is it out? And this American friend of mine says, it is, John. I said, oh, is it? <laughs> is it not good? It's not, John. No. <laughs> and, and the New York Times is the most important review, is that oh, right? Yeah, I mean, that could, in the old days, that would have closed our show, that review. We would have, been, we would have probably not lasted another week. Unfortunately, the, the, the social media and the internet means that people can make their own minds up and, you know, communicate with each other. But uh, the New York, the, this one man from the New York Times, who hadn't, I think, had an agenda to uh, for another show to win the Tony that year. That's my bitter theory. Is that it, man Ben Brantley? It is. He's the, Ben Brantley was the guy who wrote this review, and he uh, really hated it. And yeah. the thing about it, Barney, if you don't mind me saying, I don't. Laughter is its own review, and if people are really, really laughing at your comic show then I think it's a success. And I think you can say that in your review and say it's not my taste, but people there thought it was funny. No, I completely agree. And we'll definitely go into that. But yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this review. Oh, God. Um, there I, haven't actually, read it. I haven't read it since I sent it to you this morning. I've actually, I've actually had to practice reading this review a few times because there are lots of long words that I don't understand. But we'll go into that. But uh, I'm going to read it and then let's, let's talk about it a bit more because this is like really important to me and a really interesting factor of, like you said, putting your head above the parapet and being in the public eye and stuff like that. So the review... Something Rotten, an over-the-top take on Shakespeare by Ben Brantley for the New York Times. Unchecked enthusiasm is not always an asset in music, musical comedy, despite the genre's reputation for wholesale peppiness. Something Rotten, the rambunctious new show that opened on Wednesday night at the St. James Theatre, dances dangerously on the line between tireless and tedious, and winds up collapsing into the second camp. If that sounds exhausting, the large cast on stage betrays no signs of flagging. Clad in what is surely very heavy Elizabethan costumes and performing what is essentially the same determined showstopper again and again, the ensemble members in this Broadway Does the Renaissance frolic remain as wired as Adderall popping sophomores during exam week. Sophomoric is the right adjective for something rotten, and presumably its creators wouldn't have it any other way. Conceived by the Kirkpatrick brothers Wayne and Carey, who wrote the score, with a book by Carey Kirkpatrick and John O'Farrell, this production wallows in the puerile puns, giggly double entendres, lip-smacking bad taste, and goofy pastiche numbers often found in college reviews. All those traits, I should add, have also been in evidence in two of the, um, in two of the most successful Broadway musicals of recent years, The Book of Mormon and Mel Brooks's The Producers. Yet, how restrained and elegant those shows seem next to something rotten, directed and choreographed by Casey Nicolor, who provided the same services for Mormon. 
I never thought I'd be saying this, but Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the South Park collaborators who came up with Mormon, and Mr. Brooks turn out to be masters of the art of knowing when to stop. Like its antic ancestors, something rotten has a sacred cow to skewer. In this case, it's the inflated reputation of one William Shakespeare, Christian Ball, who in this telling is a crafty and egomaniacal plagiarist who leaves no room for competition. Or, as the lyrics put it, if your name is Shakespeare, you're hotter than hot, but if you're any other writer, then you're not. This monopoly makes life very hard for Nick, Brian Darcy James, and Nigel, John Cariani, a fraternal playwriting team that can't seem to catch a break. Their last name is Bottom, an inexhaustible source of wordplay. So Nick, the older, hungrier, and less talented, consults a soothsayer, Thomas Nostradamus, a frothing Brad Oscar, to get the advance word on the next big thing in theatre. The overly far-sighted seer predicts it will be musical comedy. So, Something Rotten has two canons from which to pull fodder, the complete works of You Know Who and the Broadway musical. The show's appeal, such as it is, lies in its anachronistic mis mismatch. This is clear from its opening number, Welcome to the Renaissance, in which a chorus attired in doublets, doublets, is that right? Yeah. In doublets and farthingales, seen against Scott Pasch's deliberately kitschy, merry oldie London set, extol the glories of being utterly up to date in the 1590s, while singing and dancing like a road company of a generic song and dance blockbuster from, from the late 20th century. Got it? The pull-out-all-the-stops effort that's made to sell this introductory song is both invigorating and suicidal. Because where does the show go from here? The answer, straight over the top, into an ether where something rotten flails like a parachutist in a windstorm. My preview audience, I recognised many members of the fraternity of Broadway show folk, awarded this expenditure of energy with two standing ovations. The first occurred halfway through the first act, after Mr. Oscar's Nostradamus led a number that foresaw the shape of entertainment to come. You weren't lying about those... Uh... <laughs> Those <laughs> applause rest. breaks, yeah. It features melo melodic and choreographic references to pretty much every musical you've ever heard of, from West Side Story to Les Miserables. Any classics that were not name-checked then are dutifully mentioned in the second act number, Make an Omelette, which registers as an act of force-feeding an already overstuffed audience. Omelette, by the way, is a misreading of Hamlet by Nostradamus, who tries to predict what Shakespeare's chef d'oeuvre will, so will be so Nick can steal the idea. When I was in grade school, it was considered the height of wit to refer to Hamlet as Omelette, and it is such heights that something rotten occupies. Phallic humour abounds, starting with the oversized cod pieces worn by the men. Greg Barnes did the costumes. It is a cod piece into which Nigel, played with rather charming nerdiness by Mr. Cariani, reaches when he tells the girl he adores, Portia, Kate Reinders, doing an impression of Kristen Chenoweth, I have something to show you. Fortunately, it's only a sonnet that he keeps next to his privates. And, oh yes, there's a sonnet reading by Mr. Cariani that is rendered as a parallel to premature ejaculation. Sometimes you wonder if the show isn't made up of scenes culled from the wastebaskets of the Saturday Night Live staff. The cast also includes Heidi Blickenstaff as Nick's stalwart wife, B, a precocious feminist. This is the 90s, we've got a woman on the throne. Jerry Vicky is a Jewish theatre lover named uh, Shylock. Brooks Ashmanskas as a disapproving Puritan prone to many inadvertent erection jokes, and Peter Bartlett doing his inimitably Rococo thing in a couple of roles. With his resolute jaw, gleaming smile, and heroic tenor, Mr. Darcy James wasn't meant to play a sad sack like Nick. Though he works hard, the character eludes his grasp. Mr. Ball brings his well-polished panoply, is that right? Yep. I don't even know what that is. Panoply of comic ticks, winks, and flourishes to his portrayal of Shakespeare as a glam rock star. 
As anyone who saw his Tony-winning Captain Hook in Peter and the Starcatcher knows, Mr. Ball is a master of carefully stylized excess. In something rotten, though, he has nothing else to fall back on. Like the show itself, it's both too much and not enough. It is long, John. Yeah. It is long. You're but I put all that in there. You're not going to cut that down in your in your. Podcast. Do you know what? I, I'm really not because I think it's really fascinating to ask you. Yeah. A like, when did you first read it? Like you said, a really good story about how it was at that party. Yeah. How how much did that ruin the party for yeah, you? Well, I, I, I was quite drunk by the time I read it, and I uh, had such a great night. I scan read it on my phone, mm-hmm. and I, I my, the sort of I took in. Oh, that's a bad review. And the next morning, I thought, oh, that's a nasty review. So it was worse the next day, really. And worse when I thought, oh, that's going to, you know, soberly, I thought, oh, that's going to damage us. That is going to affect the number of people who say, we're going to New York. Well, let's go and see a show. What do the New York Times say about that new right, show? Right. And that, that did damage us. So we ran for two years, um, but in a big theatre that we struggled sometimes to fill in midweek. Uh, 15, 1700-seater. So that's huge. Um we're a success. We and, and you know, for everybody says about Christian Ball, Christian Ball got the Tony for that part as well. Oh, great! Um, but we got ten Tony nominations, only got one Tony. Uh, I would have loved us to be the next uh, Book of Mormon next sure. producers, and we sure. weren't that. Uh, the show did even better on tour, and it's um, going out around the world. And it's supposed to be coming to. It was planned to come to the UK this autumn, but that's been put put back. So it's not the show wasn't perfect, and we had improvements to do, but it wasn't unfunny because no. you can tell when something's unfunny because people don't laugh um was it over the top yeah that was the sort of um that was the style we went for it was a really big um uh musical comedy parody so it was you know it was uh all stop all the stops were out so um, you mentioned before that you felt there was a an agenda. The, the the writer had an agenda exactly. Yeah. Is that is that something you'd heard at the after reading that kind of within the politics of musical yeah, theatre? Yeah, maybe I was listening to people too much. I mean, there was one show there called Fun Home, which opened on Broadway that year about a, um, a sort of a, a lesbian uh, funeral home based on a graphic novel. Which was the sort classic of, narrative? It was. It was that was the that was the, everyone's uh, uh, the critics' choice for the Tony Award. It duly won the Tony Award. It's a good show in its in its you know own style, and it did what it did well. And I think we did what we did well. So you're comparing apples and oranges. Yeah. But I am. Um, lots of people said, "Oh, he wants that to win the Tony, and he's gunning for everything that isn't that." Which I may may be a bit paranoid. I just don't think he liked our show at all. Um, and what can you do? I think it's crazy that someone's personal taste has that much power and can spoil a party like that um and uh, there's a couple of you know what when i've had reviews for my books i've sort of taken it on the chin and gone okay that's my work and it's all down to me but funnily enough when you're working with a team you take it worse really because you're going how dare he say that about kate or you know how dare he say she's a christian chinowith she's She's as good as Christian Chenoweth and doing her own thing. Just because she's blonde, you called you compared her to this very famous uh, Broadway actor. But she was great and did that part really well. So to snipe at her like that really annoyed me. And to snipe a couple of other snipey things he says about some of the other cast members. And I felt uh, outraged on their behalf. Right. Um, and you're all together. And so you sort of get yourself in, you sort of whip yourself into a state of indignation with mates about yeah. a review like that. And as with many football analogies, is there any part of that where it helped to bond you together and make those make some changes and work harder to make it a better show? The show is locked, actually. I mean, that's the thing. You know, right. By the time you uh, by the time you get your review, you're open, and it's, it's not an easy thing to make major changes. Um, you have to get the cast back into rehearsals and pay them all again. Um, 
we did make changes for the road uh not significant changes, and we'll make different we'll make more changes again for the uk but nothing it's still going to be this big silly uh pastiche of uh, yeah. broadway and that big number in which we throw everything in the middle of Act One at weekends used to get a standing ovation you know, no. consistently, and that was an amazing experience to see this many people having such a great time. Yeah, no, and and like we kind of alluded to a bit before, it it does come back to that thing of if the people in the audience are laughing, yeah, then how how I've always found it hard to know how do you then do a job where you are going against that and saying to yourself, no, there's some you know, and then writing or publishing, there's something not good about that because like you said the key is are the people who have paid good money to watch this enjoying themselves yeah well i mean you can probably say there's some bad comedy out there and people you know shouldn't be laughing at a certain type of joke if it was racist or if it was sexist you've got whatever. that look in your eyes where you're talking about mrs brown's boys i feel confident <laughs> I do you know what? I've, I've never watched the whole mrs brown's boys. <laughs> no, no, i'm sure it's that is the I'm go-to sure, though isn't it that is. i'm sure say. it uh it does a great job for the people who it's aimed at yeah um so there are i'm not saying all comedy is uh, should be praised to the roof rafters because it's getting laughs. All I'm saying is um, there's room for uh, a show like ours on Broadway. Um, and it was a show that a lot of people really loved. And I thought what we did, we did well. Now, I don't, I haven't really thought about this review much since. It's only because you asked me about no, a that's... review in particular. It's not, it didn't, it didn't eat me up, but it did. But I did think, what I'd do if I met him? I'd, would I say something to him? Would mm. I? Because a couple of my, you know, co-workers were wanted to, yeah, were furious. I wanted to write yeah. to the New York Times and stuff. Right. I was like, like, guys, guys, you just, it's just got to be water for ducks back and move on, and just keep keep producing the work that you like and you're proud of. Um, a lot of people say not to read your reviews as well. Yeah, I I read everything actually. I read my Amazon reviews and you know and I you write most of them. <laughs> that's what I say. I've done a thousand words a day. That's what I do. Um, um, so yeah, I I do uh, like to see what people think. And actually, the Amazon Amazon reviews um, across a range because you get like a hundred or two hundred. They give you a good sense of whether you you know you, which book is your best. You can the the, the, the public decide. Interesting. So I don't uh, begrudge any of that. Um, and I think it's a weird not to read your reviews because that is how you're being perceived out there, and mm-hmm. it's a useful, it's a use, it's a useful tool for a writer and you know, somebody's putting work into the public domain to know the the, the 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 world in which their stuff is being released. Yeah, should say also because you told me this, and I think it's really interesting and kind of goes with that agenda side or possibility. A lot of the all the other reviews were very positive. You were oh saying. yeah. Pretty well. I, you pretty know, well. I got one here. That... I won't read it out. But the New York Post review, the headline was something rotten deserves to be Broadway's new big fat hit. Yeah. So was. how much, how different could that be? I know, I know. And then there was um, uh, and somewhere somewhere in the middle, you know. So, but no, but mostly they were like, this is great. This show, I had such a great time. It's not, you know, the show is not um, high art. And I, there's something, you know, we both have a background in comedy, but there's something snooty about reviewers and comedy. And you could go to the theatre and be bored out of your head and read the review next morning and it's like uh, a searing indictment of our modern world. And you're going, really? I was bored out of my head. I wish I'd gone to see Fulham. <laughs> um, but um, uh, but go to a comedy and it's funny and they go, it was a bit cheap and it was a bit easy. Yeah. And it's like, it's not easy. It's not easy writing jokes and make people laugh for two and a half hours. No. And um, God, that's a long time. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's worth two and a bit hours, I think. Two and ten. Um, but... Um, Glad you're so, not trying to write a new musical material every single night, mate. Like yeah, you are, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but so um, I, th- I just think uh, there's a sort of snobbery about uh, being popular and being funny and not being 
difficult and about you know death and the human existence and yeah. you know oh, there definitely is and you're going on oh you've now written the mrs doubtfire musical yes did you take any learnings not from that review but from your first experience of writing musical into the next one and, and what's actually happening with the mrs doubtfire musical as well mrs doubtfire musical was just, was set to open this spring we had a great preview uh, period in uh seattle in the autumn and i was out there for a while and that went really well took a few uh pointers about how to improve it for broadway we had three previews on broadway in march which went really well and uh then covid closed broadway mm. and um so we're just waiting for um for that to happen uh for everything to pass i think there's things we can do use with this time to uh, make it even better and tighter i would say there is uh, something i took away from that review and our failure to win all the tony awards which was just to really be vigilant on tone so sometimes there's a joke which is funny in the moment but you're going do we want to go that smutty right. or go that rude or swear so um the stuff in Mr. Doubtfire are gone it's not worth it guys it's not worth it for that for the for the number of people who would turn off with that a joke of that rudeness God, that makes me feel quite anxious the thought that if ever that reviewer found out that you had taken anything from his review to on to your you know your future work that he would be kind of you know yeah, but build all, himself up in but we also didn't assignment. win all, we did also didn't win best book we didn't uh we didn't storm it in the way that uh producers did or Book of Mormon did uh, it was a, I mean they are moderate, two of the most successful musicals of all time yeah, of course John yeah I know, I know. I was, we were a moderately successful show on Broadway and that's not bad uh, for a you know weekending writer from Radio 4 but <laughs> um, um, but uh, if I can make it better I mean if a joke's hilarious it's going in if yeah. it's quite funny but it's like everyone's going to go you went there then I'd keep it out Okay, brilliant. Uh, well, uh, I should say this is the first of the new series that we've recorded. I don't know what uh, order it'll go out in, but um, I've really enjoyed uh, talking about that review in particular and, and you giving your honest opinion. I think it's a really interesting insight. I really do. So thank you so much. And I wanted, I, I think what I will ask everybody at the end of that section is, um, but you've just answered it, but uh, do you think there's anything right in the review? And I think you haven't said it's right, but you took something from it, which was a kind of a, an element of tone. Yeah, and uh, the throw everything at it. Uh, but I think that was right uh, that he said that uh, you know that that he didn't like that. But we sort of that was what we were doing. We were yeah. throwing uh, everything at it, and it was like I I can't believe I keep getting slapped around the face with these jokes and references. Uh, and some people loved it, and he obviously didn't. Uh, you know, if you're a creative person, don't let the reviews uh, dictate what you write. Though you've got to write what makes you laugh and what what makes you. Uh, yeah, I think it's your best whatever you think is your best work so, absolutely yeah. very very wise John okay just before we leave uh, I'm going to do my standard quick fire questions John okay. so first thing that comes into your head what's the most embarrassing thing that's happened to you because of being in the public eye I was on um, a holiday with my wife and this man said I know you Farrell that's right what is it Colin Farrell <laughs> my wife went oh, I wish I wish yeah, that's not embarrassing it's just quite no funny. but actually it just reminded me that you said something in right at the, so at the top where you, where you made uh, someone got yeah. something wrong that, that probably counts but the Colin Farrell, Farrell yeah. is very funny um, what's the best thing about being in the public eye or having been in the public eye uh, when I was better than I am now you don't realise at the time how many doors are opening and how many interesting things are happening to you because you're slightly well known so I would get to do 
asked to be on things like Newsnight Review and go to see a film or a play or uh, an exhibition and then just chat about it with Martha Carney and the interesting people at the BBC get drinks afterwards car home and I thought what a great evening that was so good. and uh, all those things were great and that was uh, a very happy sort of eight or ten years of my life that I was able to sort of um, uh, ride that wave you know be asked to have a column in the Guardian be asked to go on Question Time those are all really interesting fun things to do uh, and then gradually realises the phone isn't ringing quite as much because things have moved on. That's fine. That's and deal. is that the worst thing about it then, when things, when things, the the phone stops ringing, or no, can you think really. of anything else? I mean, I still occasionally get asked to do things, but uh, I think it's right that it's. I'm not asked to be on all those things anymore. I think uh, the other recently producer said we'd like to go on the news quiz. I went, have you really not got anyone more interesting than me? Um, have you got, uh, I said, no, you really? I think you need your agent to have those conversations. <laughs> John, that's not going to work in your favour. No, it was uh, another white man and then they got on some posh journalist boy and I thought, okay, so you just, you didn't take any notice what I said and went with a different, a posh, a Tory right boring man. Yeah. So, um, no, I, I, uh, I wouldn't say that's the worst thing. The worst thing about being the public eye, I suppose, is, uh, I don't know, really. I suppose the, the fact that it might annoy your kids. Or Pete, I tell you what was bad. When my kids were in school, my son was there like, oh, you're in, you're only in the football team because your dad's chair of governors or right, right, right. on telly. So the people would, some people would be slightly resentful or yeah. jealous. I mean, yeah. if you were the chair of the governors, that probably... <laughs> well, there's one of the, <laughs> That's one the worst article, one. There's one article in the mail, which was how the smug left give their kids a leg up. And it was like, all about me. And it was like, the smug left become chairs of governors and so their kids at school get best treatments. It's like... <laughs> You had oh, wow. no idea. My son was like, "You have no idea what that school was like, mate," because it was not. It was not a faux private school. By oh any god! Story. Well, in future series, we'll have to dig that one out. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, who's the most famous person in your phone? Oh, uh, I got Gordon Brown. Oh, very uh, good. Uh, yeah. Oh, no uh, one's had a prime minister yet, John. Yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah, I've been to checkers, me. That was interesting. You see, I got us oh, to do wow. checkers and all that stuff. That was interesting. What happened to do way? checkers? What a type five? What were you doing there yeah. for dinner? <laughs> we had dinner with Tony Blair. We had dinner with Gordon Brown. And though when Labour lost power, that was a significant shift because I used to get asked to all these establishment things. I'd be going to, you know, uh, the foreign off the, the the foreign secretary's country residence for dinner with Amazing. my family. And when Labour lost, it's suddenly like, oh, that doesn't happen anymore. That's that's that period. We're out now. And so I remember leaving Downing Street and thinking, this will be the last time I ever come here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You you just don't think about the yeah. you don't think about the realities of the jollies that people <laughs> yeah, miss out no, on. Yeah, they were great jollies. When yeah. a when a party loses power. Yeah. Final question: Knowing all that it entails, and with the benefit of hindsight, would you give up your time in the public eye uh, if you had the chance? By which I mean you still have the same life, finances, security, family, but you just never have had had anyone spot you, or probably never got to have gone on those jollies. Uh, yeah, I would have given it up. I mean, uh, long if it was uh, between that and the work, definitely. The work is the thing that really makes me happy. If I've written something funny that I'm proud of in the morning, uh, like today in the library, I wrote a scene for a film, and I was like, oh, that's good. That didn't exist this morning. I'm happy with it. Yeah. I'd always put that over somebody going, oh, yeah, thanks. I saw you on um, some, you know. Grumpy old men. Grumpy old men or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that's not important to me, really. Brilliant. John, you've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to plug? What books have you got coming out? Or or, or obviously we talked about Mrs. Doubtfire, but that's... Oh, I've got a podcast. Whenever. Since we're doing a podcast, I do a podcast with Andrew right. Barnes called uh, We Are History. Uh, have a listen to that. Um, we take a funny sideways look at the olden days. So <laughs> that's all. Nothing uh, nothing coming up very soon, but uh, yeah, look out for uh, something when it comes to the UK. Fantastic. Please, guys, do press that subscribe button on Almost Famous. Rate the podcast and leave us a comment too. Find us on Instagram at Almost Famous the pod- Podcast and on Twitter at Pod Almost Famous. And also, please check out my new podcast. It's called It's Your Funeral, a lighthearted look into the most important day 
of my guests' afterlives. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Cheers. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.